Hey, this is Sayyam Bhutani and you're listening to Chai Time Data Science, a podcast for data science enthusiasts where I interview practitioners, researchers and cagglers about their journey, experience and talk all things about data science. Welcome to Chai with Great Practitioners and Authors, CTDS.show. In this episode, I interview Katie War, Head of AI and Machine Learning at Rook Manor Research. Also the author of, I, to the best of my knowledge, one of the most unique books and probably the only one on this topic on how to fool AI. It's titled Strengthening Deep Neural Networks. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and if you've, and as you might know, in a few recent meetups, this year, I got introduced to this topic of fooling AI, of attacks on models, adversarial attacks, and that's how I found this book. Katie was kind enough to do an interview about it and her journey. She got interested in artificial intelligence in the late 80s. We talk about her journey and her transition into programming in Prologue. Yes, that's a programming language. To working on many interesting projects today and about the book. We also talk a lot about adversarial attacks. How can we strengthen deep neural networks and how can we prevent these attacks plus general conversation around this side note, the different look is because yours truly again messed up the audio setup, the audio intro, which is why I'm re-recording this a little while later. So hope, I hope you can excuse that, but without further ado, here's my interview with Katie or Please enjoy the show. I'm really excited to be talking to Katie War on the show. Katie, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much, Tanya. So uh, I found it interesting point about yours and you got interested in AI early in the in the mid 80s what were you studying at that time in uni how, how did you get interested in AI so to speak at, at that point in time so I probably had a bit of an unusual start with um, AI because I, I actually I guess my first introduction to computers was when I was about 11 and I was looking at um, what well, we my my brother and my sister and I uh, got for Christmas, I think it was a ZX81. Um, I don't know whether you're familiar with the ZX81. I am the, not. I'm a Zoomer. <laughs> very, very old school. <laughs> okay. so, so, so I'd spent many years, uh, teenage years, programming in basic on the ZX81. And that, and it was, it was very simple code. You know, it had 1K of memory. You know, oh, you can't okay. imagine that now. And, and you could get a 16K RAM pack that you could add on to it, which was like state of the art. You That's know, an upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but you had to tape it on with tape, or else it would fall off and you'd lose all your work, you know. Anyway, I was completely hooked just, um, just writing really silly, basic computer programs. And they were very, very simple things, you know, dots moving around the screen and things like that. And then um, came to 
going to uni and selected to my uni course and I saw this course which Edinburgh University in Scotland were offering on artificial intelligence and computer science and it just looked amazing you know it was like it, it lingu linguistic processing and robotics and just just like total sci-fi so um yeah I signed up for that and I I did that course but it was it was very different from artificial intelligence as, as it's often seen now in, in that, I guess, but the concept of AI was very much known since like the, the uh, you know, like the 1950s and 1950s yeah. with neural networks and stuff like that. But the, the work that we did was more focused on knowledge representation and, um, and we did a lot on things like the ethics of AI in terms of and, and more tied with neuroscience and and because it wasn't the data and the compute power. Um, obviously, we didn't really do much machine learning, which sounds bizarre probably now to hear AI without machine learning. And we, we knew, you know, we learned about neural networks, but we didn't actually do much in the way of neural networks because you just couldn't hmm. and so so yeah so I was fascinated by AI and we we did basic robotics and natural language processing was very different from what it is now because there wasn't the data so it was actually extracting the the syntax the verbs and the nouns and stuff and doing it that way and yeah I was totally hooked. Uh, lingering on to your your uh, the beginning of your journey in the field of uh, computers uh, when was the first if, if you remember when was the first point that you realized uh, this is what I want to do as a career you, you started coding very early in life uh, was there a particular incident you remember that oh this is this is going to be the rest of my life I think it was pretty early on actually I think as a teenage as, as a young teenager uh, you know 11 12 I, I actually remember writing my first computer program which is so and it was just one where I asked asked how old you were and if you put over 30 it said you were very old you know <laughs> that was that was it and 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 I remember being absolutely obsessed with just writing little programs and I think that so very very early on just just being at, yeah said it complete completely hooked on it okay and uh, in in uni, what what uh, frameworks were you using? Because we didn't have any frameworks at that point in time. It's it's tough to realize now. How are you writing all of these uh, implementations? So so at uni, we did. Um, I think we did some C in the computer science part part of the course, but in the AI part of the course, we focused on Prolog. And it's a really interesting language. It's more you define relationships and then you write logic to run over those relationships kind of it's really fun to write with and I recommend if you've not tried writing a bit of prologue actually taking a look just because it, it makes your mind think in a slightly different way um so yeah it was primarily in prologue and I I enjoyed that and yeah and yeah it was it was fun I, I'm sure we'll get back to it. But after that, you pursued a career in architecting web services, web policies. How, how did you get interested in that? And how did that shape your interest in AI? Yeah. Um, so at the time, you know, in the early 1990s, there just weren't jobs in AI. That It wasn't something that was something that you could do. 
And so I enjoyed software, so I thought I'd go into software. And I worked um, for IBM for many years, looking at, it, it was actually developing middleware. Mm-hmm. Um, so the kind of core software, which underpins banking and insurance company companies, it was really interesting, actually, mainly in uh started off in C, but then later on in Java, uh, Enterprise Java, and very much learning the core kind of fundamentals of software engineering and software engineering good practice. And working in very large teams, I really enjoyed that. Working in cross-site, cross all, all around the world, different people developing and coding together and building um, quite complicated complicated uh, systems so yeah and then then I specialized in in web services uh, specifically in the protocols which web services use to to negotiate and you know the client service negotiate and communicate with each other so um, in terms of security for example and the technique that what's used in in terms of uh, communicating between the client and server to to establish a security p- protocol, and yeah, it was really interesting. Lots of different meeting lots of different people from lots of different companies, working in lots of different teams, and doing lots of different types of software. It was it was great, um, but but then I moved away from away from that and into uh, where I work now, which is uh, Rank Manor Research, which is more of an engineering consultancy, and then moved into the data science and the AI. Um, definitely fascinating. So if we, we take all of this for granted today, just because we have so many nice frameworks in the world of web development. Uh, what's your perspective? There's this ongoing debate of software 2.0. You don't need to know the best software engineering practices. You've gone through that rigor. Uh, what's your stance on how much strict should we we be with uh, the data science code that we put out i it's a really interesting question isn't it because i think that people come from different so many different perspectives and actually the industry is going to benefit from those different perspectives so if you get a mathematician who is or a, a real data scientist who maybe doesn't have the software engineering background they're going to bring something slightly different but ultimately to take and, and so, something very important, building very uh, wonderful um, components, data science components, which will fit into a, a bigger systems and, you know. Um, but ultimately, I think uh, you also need obviously the software engineering in order and, and those practices to assure those data science components. And it's, it's kind of interesting because I think one of the big challenges is moving data, moving ML models from test to operational. Deployment. Isn't that the job of the engineers? Why are you talking about this boring stuff? This is boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah it's, an, it's an interesting question. But I think it's more than just moving it, you know, for, in terms of integrating with the software components. It's the assuring it. So, um, for example, you can uh, you can test your model for accuracy, and you can have your F one score, and you know be yeah, this is ninety nine percent accurate, accurate, and you're happy with it. But 
ultimately when you move it to operations you can't be sure that that model will behave as you expect in a real operational environment because you don't know whether the well you might know but you know the question is is the the data in the operational environment representative of the training data which you use to train the model on and your test data which you've tested on on and you know is is the environment going to change for example and and I think having some rigor and critiquing the way that models are assessed is really important and having rigor in terms of development so for in in, for example using uh, things like continuous integration and, and continuous testing to check that the model isn't regressing is it's always going to be a good thing. I think the key point in, in your answer is checking the model and not the code because uh, we can't really hold the simple Keras or uh, PyTorch code that we write to, to the same rigor. So we need to test the models and not, not just the code. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. So uh, transitioning into data science, how, how at what point did you decide to professionally again transition back into this field? And please tell us more about your role at uh, Rockmaner Research, where you're leading the team, I believe, right now. Yeah, so I didn't actually officially make any decision to transition back. I think in my mind, I'd always thought, well, I'd love to do something in AI, but it didn't seem feasible. And I think there's so many changes, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, um, not just not just with the data that became available, but also the and not just the compute power either, but also the way that um, software is shared now and open source and the way people collaborate in a way which just didn't happen before. So you can you can learn stuff online so easy and you can you can just pick pick stuff up and 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 so I think transitioning, it wasn't a decision to transition back into data science. I think I, I, I started doing some Hadoop programming um, and using MapReduce when it was, for, Hadoop MapReduce when it was first, you know, introduced. And then very gradually we had, Rogue, we started looking more at, at how to develop ML models for our, our clients and then just naturally move back to um, the more data science and machine learning. And actually, because I haven't had a formal education in data science, I learned an awful lot from the graduates and then the newer people coming into the company who, who you know, brought ideas and the stuff they'd learned from, from university, which was very different from what I'd learned and, you know, gave me bits on where to read and, you know, what to learn about and it, yeah. So, so it wasn't a formal transition, it was more gradual. Many people struggle with uh, learning about uh, or just gaining all of this knowledge. Was it uh, for you just project-based? Did you pick uh, the skills up yeah. as, as a project scheme alone? Primarily project-based. And I, I did some stuff, um, you know, at home, I'd, I'd play around with things, but I tend to learn better just by experimenting and just, yeah, that, that, that's how I learn better. That's, I, I think that's also one of the struggles with quite a bit of us. Uh, we struggle to find these projects just because many of us go into this field without having any other experience. This is probably our first project. So how should we find these uh, little ideas to play around with? Well, it's in, um, 
I think I think you can. It's so easy to get started with very basic tutorials. Even if you go on to um, the TensorFlow website, for example, you, you can start on those very basic tutorials. Or, or there's so many basic courses out there. But then picking up very small areas and just trying to write your own little classifier, or or and and it failing but then watching it fail <laughs> and understanding why it fails and exploring that a bit. And then when you get bored, just moving to something else and having a little, a little play with that. I think you can learn a lot by just, um, just playing around and maybe things not, not working out how they should, but ha- having a bit of fun. And, and, and as you say, there's so much available now and you've got the, uh, you know, the, the code online and example code that, you can look at that other people have written and just trying to understand other people's code I find is actually beneficial as long as it's not too convoluted <laughs> no I, I think again the key point for me is just because there's uh, so much out there we probably just stay stuck in that rabbit hole and instead just trying something out failing through that and instead uh, that'll, that'll be a more uh, rewardful journey for anyone I think that's that's a takeaway for me yeah yeah and I think also listening to other people and what they're their um take on it is because sometimes I found that I had quite uh ideas on how things should be done and talking to people who were often newer in the field and they'd come up with something totally different and I'd my first instinct was to say oh no that's that's not how it should be done and (laughs) and actually it's just looking listening to different ideas is is good and reading around yeah, just just signing up to things and reading around uh, what research is going on is is a good way to learn. That's great advice. Uh, so please tell us more about your role. You're currently the head of uh, strategic offerings for AI and data analytics. So yeah, so I've actually I've actually just stepped down from that role to do more engineering work. But um, yeah, so so um, Roke, I think it's many companies has built up a data science and AI ML departments and takes on you know graduates each year and trains those graduates and builds to build a strong data science and and AI ML teams and so yes yeah, so my my role for the past few years has been kind of overseeing the the um the development of those 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 groups you know those, those departments yeah and and looking at where we should be focusing perhaps in terms of strategically and what what what's perhaps coming in the future and what our customers want if i understood correctly these are consultancy projects that you are leading yeah yeah so we we do consultancy for for lots of different um customers and basically if if a customer comes to us and says oh well how would i approach this particular um problem um we we might experiment with uh, new ideas from research, for example, in how, how to approach um, um, some machine learning challenge, or or if it's like a vision processing challenge, saying is do we use traditional vision processing techniques, or do we um, combine that with new machine learning? Um, so, so that sort of thing. But we have a very broad uh, remit in terms of um, uh, different customers so and different asks so it's a really interesting role to be in it's really interesting and I think it's not like consultancy in I've seen consultancy more as a kind of suited thing 
you know, people going in and and talking, and but it's more consultancy in terms of actually providing engineers, engineering and technical ideas, which I yeah I enjoy that. Makes sense, uh, and I I think that also allows me to transition into the next uh, topic about the book. Uh, you you were just sharing off of the interview that you had worked on an adversarial patch uh, related project. Can can you tell us more about that and how did the book uh, originate? How, how did that idea come about? Okay, so the the book um, is actually about fooling AI, and by fooling AI, what I mean is fooling deep neural networks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh that's that's great. <laughs> uh, for the people listening to the audio, I just uh, hope I didn't break my monitor, but I <laughs> I'm holding up the book right now. It's titled "Strengthening Deep Neural Networks." Um, yes. Yeah, so, so the book is about um, it's it's actually how to defend against and whether it's possible to defend against uh, um, deliberate attempts to fool deep neural networks. Um, And it's an interesting problem because, of course, with deep neural networks, the potential input space is so vast that no matter, even if you've got hundreds of thousands of training data samples, you're not going to give enough for the deep neural network model to generalize across every possibility, every possible example. Like we were just talking, the edge cases are so large; it's it's really tough to test yeah. it thoroughly. Yeah, and of course you've got you you kind of assume things are going to be in distribution to some extent, or or in many scenarios you might. So in distribution, I mean like a, a similar distribution to the training data that you used. So for example. Um, you, you might assume that uh, that if you have an image classifier, it's going to get reasonable looking images, which no, yeah. not just a zigzag or whatever. And then there's an interesting thing that it's possible to deliberately find places in the input space, which will confuse the AI deep neural network into providing a, a an incorrect result and to producing an incorrect result. And um, it's not that difficult to find those spaces because you can you can use mathematical optimization techniques to find where in the input space there's a, a place which will fool, fool the, the neural network. Um, and importantly, the, the point is to fool the neural network in a way that wouldn't fool a human. So in the case of image, and of course you could do the same with audio, but in the same in the case of image, um, that might be choosing, you know, just tweaking a few pixels quite quite significantly, but just ones which maybe we don't notice, or tweaking pixels right across the image or, or quite a bit. Um, again, in a way that a human being wouldn't notice. So the image looks exactly the same to a human being. And then there's, we call that adversarial perturbation. And then there's this other technique where you say, well, actually, is there something that you can add to the input, which is so salient to the deep neural network that it will totally distract the deep deep neural network into giving an incorrect result. And so in the, in in, in the case of image, an image classifier, this would be an image or a sticker, a patch. And I've got some examples here I'll show you. Here's ones which we de- developed at Reg. 
a patch which would confuse the image network, the the image classifier. And this, this for example, you might be able to guess what this is. Can you? It's like a soccer ball to me. Yeah, it's a soccer ball one. So this is like the ultimate mo most salient soccer ball. Uh, uh, an image classifier can find. And, and this will work. This has been optimized for ResNet 50. Okay. Um, but it will transfer to other ImageNet trained classifiers. So VGG, for example. Hmm. It's not as good. And, and the reason it will probably transfer is because the input space has probably got some similarity. And the manifolds in it and, and the the decision boundaries are probably have some similarity because the training data is is similar, um, and so so this is the 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 like the the ultimate most salient the the, the ultimate soccer soccer ball <laughs> that you could possibly that a DNN could possibly imagine, mm -hmm. and if you put it in an image with something else which um, the neural network should be classifying, it will get totally distracted. To this the other thing with this is that um it's been optimized for different camera angles hmm. which is a really important point so if if i hold it like this and move it around or if it was slightly shaded it usually still works it's not 100 hmm. percent. it usually works mm -hmm. but it may not also always work um and that was done through a, a a technique called expectation over transformation. And if you Google on that, you'll see some MIT researchers develop this technique, which is actually doing the optimization on lots of different angles and, and changing um, things like the lighting. And uh, the engineers that wrote kind of did an extension on that just to make them a bit more robust. And, and this is pretty robust um, to camera angle. And then I've got some more if you want to see. Absolutely. <laughs> so Please. this... The, uh, the, let's see this one here. This one's, um, can you guess uh, that one? That, looks a, like something like a raccoon. <laughs> it's a tarantula. Okay. <laughs> I don't think that one's so robust. Some of them work better than others. Now, interestingly, I think ones with more unique features tend to work better than others. So, for example, this one is very good. This is, um, you might be able to guess that. Something like a peacock. <laughs> Maybe I'm being it, fooled again. <laughs> yeah, it's got the colours of people. We actually did have one with the peacock, but this is actually a clock. You can see the mm. hands. But actually, and the most interesting thing about these, I think, is illustrated very well with this one. This one is... Um, Something a like a dog. Yeah, it's a golden <laughs> retriever one. La, that was a charm. La, third time is a charm. <laughs> <laughs> but this one, I love this one because... It illustrates the, what the neural network is picking out as the most salient features in deter determining what a golden retriever is. And so you think it's obvious, yeah, you've got the nose and that. But then if you look down here, hmm. there are various toys, what looks like maybe a tennis ball and another toy here. And so actually that indicates to us that the neural network is learning how to distinguish a golden retriever hmm. based not on the golden retriever but on the other things which are in the training image um, and, and and I find that very interesting and this ties into the whole explainable AI 
in that, you know, that it's not so far from explainable AI when you realize that if you create the most salient um, picture for a particular classification, you're also uh, highlighting the most important features in determining that classification. And so you're kind of explaining what the AI is making its decision on, which is kind of interesting. Makes sense. Um, and, and it highlights the fact that deep neural networks as we know them currently are actually pretty pretty stupid and lazy in many respects. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, because they're just mathematical op optimizations. And there was a, an interesting paper um, that was presented last year at, um, at ICLR, uh, which was about how ImageNet is primarily uh, ImageNet trained classifiers are primarily just using texture to mm. make their decisions. So, I, yeah. So uh, this this field itself is very new. Uh, GANs were invented in 2014. This probably is the most recent division in deep learning. How, how do we uh, effectively test uh, attacks? Uh, and you, you talk about this in the book. Uh, the book teaches us about white box attacks, black box attacks. How, how do we test against these? Yeah, so they're actually, and, and the, the GANs are slightly different because of course they are, they're using adversarial machine learning, but they're using it to create something. So they're obviously, you know, just having the adversarial part within the neural network. Um, but actually in terms of cyber attacks on AI, there's the, the type of cyber attack that I look at in the book is that of adversarial examples, which are fooling AI. And there are other types of cyber attack you can do, which I can mention in a minute. But but um, with, with adversarial examples, you've got the perturbation attack and the adversarial patch, as I said. And in, in order to work out the adversarial example, you have to either have access to the model itself or the ability to query the model in some way in order to kind of do a, an iterative, um, iteratively work out where the um, boundaries are, where, you're ad where in the input space you're going to find an adversarial example. And so in terms of in terms of protecting against adversarial examples, there's a few things that you can do. Um, firstly, you can keep your models private, not share them. But then even then, there's and, and, and you could check to see if someone's repeatedly querying a model mm. if, it, if it was one on a website. But then there's this interesting case of the transfer attack, which I actually think is the most likely, where you develop a, a an adversarial example on one model and then transfer it over to your target that you're trying to attack. Um, and so, so, sorry to break that down. Uh, yeah. What's happening yeah. is we're attacking our own model that we have trained. Let's say I'm the attacker. I, I attack my own model and yeah. I break it successfully and use that uh, model to attack the real model that I want to attack later. Yeah. So if, yeah, if you know that if you were trying to attack the model that art created and you know, what that model is trying to do and you could make a kind of well, a proxy of it 
Hmm. And you could probably make a pretty good guess of the sort of data that I might have used to train it. And you might even have access to the same data, which would be a great advantage. You could probably make a guess as to the architecture that I used. Um, and yeah, you, you, can, you can then create, optimize your adversarial example and then then use that against my model without me knowing that you've been pl plotting <laughs> all this time, you know, <laughs> you, you plan away. But, but of course, it's not going to be all that. Um, it's not going to, you, you're not going to, the success rate isn't going to be guaranteed, hmm. um, which is, it, that could be a problem or it might not be. Um, so if you consider, if you were trying to camouflage your image, for example, or, or use some kind of camouflage and it was really important that your adversarial example worked. So say there was someone who was wanting to upload images to a website which were not legal, they had, uh, or, or they maybe had firearms or something in, in the images or something like that. Um, then it would be very important if they were creating adversarial examples to let these these mm. images get past the filter that they're never seen. So they'd want really good camouflage. They'd want like an invisibility cloak that always worked. But conversely, if you wanted to use your adversarial example, for example, to create a bit of confusion in the world. So for example, if you created an adversarial example, which deliberately triggered firearms, and so you then started uploading lots of innocent pictures of mm. bunnies or whatever, um, but with these adversarial examples on, then you completely fool the, the filter into getting too many false pos positives, potentially causing a denial of service attack. But in that case, it doesn't actually matter if each one doesn't work. Mm. It, you know, it could be one in 10 works, doesn't matter. And, and I think, um, interestingly, the, the area which is most fascinating with this, I mean, often it's not, it's just not an issue because, yeah. um, for example, with with things like medical imaging, if, if you've got a, a model which determines whether an, an image is indicative of uh, cancer, for example, or not, you're unlikely to get a case where you've got adversarial examples in that in that because there isn't the motivation and there isn't access to the data from outside so, so it's not not really an issue but the, the cases where I think that it is interesting is firstly in in web web filtering and so there's a lot of emphasis now for social media for example to make sure that inappropriate content isn't uploaded but also in audio, I think it's fascinating that you can actually put adversarial examples in audio to, for example, um, incorrectly uh, get speech commands in some audio which shouldn't be there. And, and that opens an interesting, um, interesting idea that you don't always need that audio that adversarial example in the order to work if we're streaming audios and audio into our homes mm. through music and stuff you just have to have it working every now and then and you you could have you know I kind of I'm kind of surprised it's not been done but you can imagine um if someone had some music they wanted to sell as a kind of marketing thing they could put an adversarial example in that which uh, told Alexa to do something you know 
and it only has to work occasionally and people would mm. download the tune just to see whether it worked you know so it's kind of kind of interesting i think in the audio perspective and to elaborate on how easy it is to perform these attacks you mentioned i clear uh, for research people it's called i clear regular people call it iclr uh, iclr this year had a i think a separate section on uh, adversarial attacks and there was this paper called kiba if i remember correctly q e b a where they talked about you just need to upload random pictures and get the output and now you have the proxy of the model because you have the training data set and the labels already and you can just train a model by yourself so this was up to uploading to um to the target system was it yes so yeah this was for query based attacks and they were trying to replicate the uh, they were trying to create a proxy model out of it if i remember correctly and they, and they were essentially with the query based attacks that's essentially a black box attack in terms of that they don't have access to the actual model as opposed to the white box attack when you actually have have the code essentially the the model itself but but at the target you could it depends where the model is located so you could actually check to see if someone's making repeated queries to your model and and i think that's interesting too that that a lot of the research it, it's really interesting i think the query attacks are really fascinating um but a lot of the research is done quite theoretically and so actually seeing how that actually works in a a complete system hmm. where you could perhaps have some cyber um uh, some defenses around the outside i don't know it depends i guess a lot on the scenario but yeah it sounds it sounds interesting i've not seen that so i'm going to have a look <laughs> okay um so uh, how do we deal with uh, such attacks uh, let's say uh, you you're putting out a model uh, out in the wild how do you put checks against these attacks A lot of the checks could be done around the model, as I said, so making sure that there weren't excessive numbers of queries um, of a specific type and and doing those sort of things. Um, one of the, if, I think it's quite interesting to see whether you can actually put uh, defenses in as part of the model, and there are a couple of interesting approaches that I looked at um, when I was writing the book. Are the most interesting ones I thought. One is looking at whether data is out of distribution, which is a more general um, approach to um, ensuring the accuracy of a model. Anyway, another one which I thought was very interesting was, and I, I tried it and it did work on simple data sets, was um, using dropout. at test time so so um in case anyone doesn't know is listening that the, the idea of the dropout is to remove part essentially remove part of the network and it's used at training time to make the network more robust so randomly removing bits of the network to make it more robust during training but if you actually wait till after training and you do this then each time if you keep putting in the same input you'll keep getting out a different output obviously because you're randomly changing the network in some way by removing part of it the interesting thing is that if you put in a non-adversarial example you'll get a bit of difference in your output so you'll get some fluctuation in your output but if you put in an and with this dropout each time you do the randomized dropout it will make the 
the output slightly different. And you can you can look over a few, you can like do 10 different examples and see that it, it, it changes it. If you put an adversarial example in, it tends to have a bigger effect. So make a bigger change to the output. And um, probably because the adversarial examples are more reliant on specific parts of the network so mm. that when when they they're removed they have a, a major effect i just thought that was really interesting and and actually the code to do that i've put that so there's code associated with the book on github and you can see the code to do that and that i find quite fascinating <laughs> definitely is uh, cu- coming back to the book uh, now that we've established how important and how drastic uh, these attacks can be and how can we deal with them to some extent uh, please tell us more about the structure of the book i know there are four parts the first one is introduction to fooling ai uh, generative adversarial input followed by understanding real world threat uh, which is the trend we followed in this conversation followed by defense what all can we expect from the book uh, who is it for uh, do, do you uh, suggest any prerequisites for someone picking this up so I deliberately wrote the book so you didn't need any prerequisites. Um, I found that uh, when I spoke to people who are not from data science, software engineers and stuff and cyber people, and I'd come from a security perspective as well, um, there was a kind of knowledge that there was an issue potentially with AI, but not quite clear what it was. So I wanted to make it very much a book that was available to software engineers or accessible to as broad an audience as possible. So the beginning of the book is more an introduction and an introduction to neural networks in specifically with the um, audio and image in mind. And then it goes on to explain why adversarial examples exist and why they're possible. And I also wanted to make it, because if you look at a lot of the papers, you have to understand the maths. Yes. I wanted to make it so that you didn't have to be really good at maths to understand this. So I wanted to explain the maths kind of step by step, but also explain it. I mean, I I like to think of things um, conceptually kind of without thinking of the maths, but, you know, the idea of it and then then look at the maths. Um, and so I wanted to explain it as an idea in case someone didn't want to go into the maths and then also say, and here's the maths, but stepping through, this is why it is like it is. So the bit describing this section on the adversarial examples is very much written in that vein. And I picked on a few different methods for developing adversarial examples, but um, didn't want to get too bogged down on any particular technique because it's kind of an arms race and it's going to change so much so I tried to choose methods which displayed the variety of attacks and probably someone reading the book could probably read it and think oh yeah I can think of another attack from those you know so it's more the variety of the attacks rather than trying to enumerate them all because there's no way even now just a year after the books come out um, there are lots more attacks so it, it was never going to be kept up to date like that. Um, but they're, they're on the, the GitHub page, which is associated with it. So you don't have to look in the book to see those. You can just go straight to the GitHub page. And there's a lot online anyway of different attacks. Um, I use Fullbox in the exam, in the, in the 
book, but there are other uh, other um, other GitHub repositories with lots of examples in too. And then going on to the defences. Oh no, actually, there's a section on physical world, atta world attacks and the challenges mm -hmm. of the physical world attacks, and both in audio and image. And that's not only the camera angles, but also the challenge of actually recreating the the patterns to a, a an accuracy which are, will work in the physical world. Um, and then finally, the defences. And then at the very end, a look at the future of adversarial examples and I think it's kind of positive I mean I, I will say that I don't think that adversarial examples are a huge you know panic for us it's very niche cases where we have to worry about them a lot of AI it, because it because of the context in which it's deployed it's not an issue um, so for example if you had a passport control and you had um, a worry that people would wear adversarial glasses to disguise who they were. Well, to be honest, at passport control, you've probably got someone standing there who'll take them, tell them to take off their silly glasses. You know, it's yeah. it's 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 not 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 going to be such an issue. So, um, so there are cases where where there is a possibility that adversarial attacks are an issue, but a lot of cases it's kind of looking at it as a system and the whole process and the whole problem that you're trying to solve and just seeing the neural network as a component in that. And then and then looking forward, I think that what, what we talked about earlier with the um, with the features of the neural network and it picking out, like on this one, the, the silly features and learning on those, the whole thing just shows how how simple and how lazy neural networks are, and you know if if we look forward, I assume that the way that we approach neural networks will change greatly over the next five ten years. And you know, there's all the work that Jeff Hinton and his team are doing on capsule nets, and um, and there's a lot more convergence with neuroscience ideas. Um, uh, and I assume that there will be some big changes and it'll be a big shift for us to move away from what we've learned in TensorFlow and stuff and and all, all these frameworks and all, all these libraries that we're using now, I assume. And neuromorphic computing will probably become bigger. Um, and there will be a shift to less data and more neural nets which work more like how humans think and the whole idea of adversarial examples will either change or or gradually go away i assume but i i think the flip side is also scary so uh, in in the real world attacks you talked about surveillance uh, autonomous vehicles voice control devices and uh, just as a thought exercise i was considering leaving aside all of the legalities and privacy uh, concerns that we might have a using all of the images, let's say, for example, that are on the internet, what if someone has already been uh, uploading some adversarial noise or some some uh, adversarial examples there and someone decides, oh, hey, we already have these images, let's just use these. So that's that's also a recipe for disaster. Yeah, yeah, someone's already done them. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. And, and also you could use adversarial examples in training data. Is, is that kind of what you're saying? Um, I, no, uh, what I was referring to is as as just a 
seed for future attacks what if someone has already been uploading adversarial examples onto the internet and someone decides to train a model on it oh yeah yeah that that is interesting yeah this was just as a thought exercise leaving us yeah, 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 yeah. and then what not so uh, uh you you talked about the content of the book uh, i always have this issue when i look at a book i read it uh, read it from a novel's perspective and this was a thin book but it's really dense what can the readers expect to get out of it once they've completed it because you talk about the math as well uh, quite in depth and you also give code examples at the end of the chapters uh, what what will they learn out of the book after completing it i hope that i hope it's fun to read i mean that was that, that sounds silly but i really enjoyed writing it and i really found it interesting i hope that if the reader isn't familiar or or is someone in data science who maybe isn't super familiar with exactly the maths of of deep neural networks that they'll actually start thinking and understand the maths of it certainly by looking at adversarial examples bizarrely looking at how to fool something is a really good way of understanding how it works um it seems kind of counterintuitive but it's it's really good way of really understanding it in a fun way i hope that people will also think about um how how neural networks are incorporated in proper operational scenarios and um not just in terms of how they're uh, you know trained in isolation and people also i mean one of the the things which i was really interested in is is not not just the theory behind the um adversarial examples but actually in practice what does that mean or is it is it a problem or mm-hmm. or not and so i hope that it i hope it's interesting from a cyber perspective if you see what i mean um any any suggestions for people uh, where to go next from here who who'd have the foundational knowledge now where to go from here i would read about other um other attacks other cyber attacks on on ai because so, uh, this i i think this is one of the only few books uh, i couldn't find others but this is one of the few books that talks in depth about uh, attacks so uh, what should they read next? where should they find this material so um the research papers i would go to and uh, and other books um i couldn't find a book on on fooling ai before i wrote it um and so that's why i was interested in it cuz cuz it just didn't exist but there's also a, if they're interested from a cyber perspective um there's obviously poisoning attacks and just keeping up to date with the research and once you've got the maths you you know and you you're used to reading the research papers and i must say actually another nice thing about writing the book is that i got to chat to some of the researchers and you know who all very nice and helpful and and you get to learn a bit more about how you know when i first was reading the research papers as i don't come from a research background i struggled with it you know their hard work when you first go to those papers because they're quite dense because they've got limited but actually now i found them far easier to read and so yeah just just getting to the to looking at the latest research in so for, so poisoning attacks um i introducing invalid training data and also um uh, attacks to um extract the data from machine learned models 
So kind of reverse engineering, so inference and membership attacks to work out, to infer what the training data was and infer potentially private data from a model that, that has been trained on private data, for example, on medical records. And then it, is it possible to infer mathematically what that data was from the model itself? And they're, they're kind of interesting in terms of the cyber impact and, and more broadly um, the assurance of AI I think is very interesting. Okay, awesome. Um, usually my, my final question, it's, it's a repeat question uh, for, for the interviews. Uh, broadly speaking in general, what's your best advice to someone starting their journey in the field of uh, data science or machine learning? Oh, just keep learning, I think. <laughs> Just, I think there's just so much going on and there's so much to learn and and just not getting stuck in a rut. Which I, but I think most people who go into the field are that sort of person, that they like learning stuff. But from personally, it's been great for me because uh, there's been so, so many different things and I'm always being proved wrong. <laughs> but, but it's good, you know. So, yeah, I, I would say just keep an open mind, keep learning. That, that's definitely a sign of learning uh, being proved wrong. Uh, before we end the interview, Katie, what would be the best platforms for the audience to connect with you if they'd like? Um, uh, probably LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll have your LinkedIn profile uh, in the show notes. A any other platforms you'd like to mention? No. Um, just just uh, there's a GitHub repo which um, I can give you a link to for the um, notes underneath the video if that helps sure uh, okay uh, thanks again Katie for joining me on the interview and uh, thank you for writing this book I think it's still one of the only books that talks in depth uh, right from the ground basics about all of these topics so thanks thanks for this amazing resource thank you thank you it's been really nice to talk to you Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to give it a review or feel free to shoot me a message. You can find all of the social media links in the description. If you like the show, please subscribe and tune in each week to Chai Time Data Science.